You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So God, we ask that you would reveal your own glory to us in your word, uh, that you would show us our need for Jesus, and that you would give him to us. Amen. You may be seated. As we open our Bibles, or open, turn our leaflets back to page 7, we will be listening to the word of God preached from Mark 10. So my kids have now learned to roll their eyes at this. But I've gotten into a funny habit in how I sometimes handle my children's complaints. I have four kids, and they're all very sharp and verbal and vocal. And when it comes to our home, they're surprisingly protective of their own personal rights. They're like mini social justice warriors in our tiny little kingdom in Cahaba Heights. So let me paint a little scenario that is at least an occasional scene in our home. And I admit at the get-go, in these moments... I am utterly obnoxious. Okay, so say one of my kids, our third born, Brody, he comes up to me and says, hey, Dad, can we go get some ice cream? Jesse got to go get some ice cream earlier today with Mommy. And I respond, no, there's not much time. We will have to do it another day. And it's often quickly followed up by what? Some kind of outburst like, that's not fair. If you have a lot of kids or if you've lived in a home with lots of siblings, You know that fairness and equality are big deals, right? Abby and I have uh, become a little tired of all these appeals to fairness in our home. And so every once in a while, I like to pull out this response. Oh, my dear offspring, life is just not fair. In fact, you will grow older and life will only get more and more unfair. Life will relentlessly, unceasingly continue to beat you down, blow by blow, until all you have left is Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. And so why don't we just go ahead right now, before the beating is in full swing, and run into the arms of Jesus who died for you and rose for you. Blank stare, just like that. And the response usually is something like, I just wanted some ice cream, Dad, right? My kids were basically saying, I don't know where you just went with your preachy little pastor's thing. And by the way, Dad, this is what really messes up pastor's kids. But you're missing the point with your little sermon. I just wanted some ice cream, bro, right? In this episode in Mark, you get the sense that there's a similar kind of communicative disjunction going on. But in this instance, it's not the authority figure, Jesus, who's totally out of phase. It's the disciples who struggle to recognize that they're hopelessly on a journey of adventures in missing the point. If you're tracking with the narrative in Mark in the last two chapters, by now, if Jesus had an iPhone, he'd be whipping out that emoji that looks like an eye roll or the facepalm emoji. Now, I don't think that Jesus was actually face-palming here, but I do believe, though, that he's feeling some tension. Guys, I've been trying to say something, and you're just not hearing me. So what is Jesus exactly trying to say? And to answer this question, I think we need a framework that readers of the Bible like Martin Luther and Robert Capon have talked about. You see, in this passage, it's all about power. The sons of Zebedee, a nickname that it seems like Jesus gave to James and John, the sons 
of thunder. They want the power. They're asking for the top seats in glory, right? And in response, Jesus begins to make a distinction between the way power works in the world and the way power works with God. Jesus is distinguishing between what Luther and Capon might call right-handed power versus left-handed power. The power of the right hand is straight-lined power. It exerts itself by force, simply by overcoming the object it's trying to control. Right-handed power is exerted when nations go to war, when fathers discipline their children, when bosses fire employees for misconduct, when bullies shoved, and when the bullied shove back. It's the muscular power God wields when he floods the earth in judgment or when he sends plagues on Egypt. It's the kind of power a king wields when he destroys another kingdom by force. In short, the power of the right hand is what we often think of when we think of power. It has a limitation, though. If you think about all the ways that it's used out there, it rarely preserves a relationship of love. Rarely is there love on the other side of the exertion on that power, or at least it's muted or more pressed back. The power of the left hand is the complete opposite and therefore 100% counterintuitive to us. It doesn't move in a straight line. It comes at you from the side, or probably more precisely, it doesn't come at you at all. To our human eye, the power of the left hand actually looks like weakness, like the opposite of intervention and action. It's what Paul calls in his epistles foolishness. Left-handed power doesn't look like power to us, and everything in our flesh fights the idea that this power is true and truly powerful. So with that framework in place, let's look at Jesus' journey in these last few chapters to this moment in the Gospel of Mark. Three times, Jesus is trying to make clear to his disciples, I'm going to a cross and I'm going to die. This must happen. But because of the disciples' conception of power, they can't understand it. And if we're honest, neither can we. Back in chapter 8, instance number 1. Jesus feeds the 4,000. It's a reluctant demonstration of right-hand power. 4,000 people need food? Boom! Jesus delivers a straight-lined miracle. The fish and loaves are multiplied with leftovers to spare. And then Jesus heals a blind man. Right-handed power. Is there a problem? Boom! Straight-line solution. Miracle. A demonstration of glorious, godly, right-handed power. No wonder then if Jesus does this and then he asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter jumps right up and says, You're Christ! You're the Messiah, and hey, we're all in. We are all in with this. But then Jesus starts talking about how the Son of Man must suffer many things. Left-handed power. What does Peter do? Peter rebukes him. The disciples don't get it. Chapter 9, instance number 2. Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus marches up the high mountain with Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And they all see Jesus transfigured in all his right-hand power glory. Peter's response is, yes, let's stay here forever. We are all in. Let's build tabernacles. Let's make a kingdom. Let's do this. But then Jesus follows that whole thing up with this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
and they will kill him. The disciples' response, the text says, they did not understand him. It's because left-handed power is contrary to everything that we think. I can get on board with a transfigured Messiah, a miracle-working, healing Messiah. That's power. But Jesus being killed, that's weakness. And here in our passage, we come to instance number three. Interestingly, James and John want to sit at Jesus' left and right hand, but Jesus is saying, either position you're desiring, it's all right-handed positionality, straight-lined power. And here's the funny thing about the way that our hearts work when we hear something like this. You and I are tempted right now to think very outwardly about all this power stuff. I imagine conjured up in your minds are people in our lives, whether it's your coworker or your friends or the president of the United States or other powerful people who are transgressors and maybe exploiters of this kind of power in our opinion. And this is actually what the other disciples do, if you notice the narrative. They bicker and are upset with James and John for asking the question, right? I can't believe James and John would be so arrogant to think that they could request to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in glory. They position the power problem out there with James and John. But we all kind of sniff it out, don't we? The other disciples aren't upset because somehow James and John have misinterpreted the teaching of Jesus and are missing Jesus' point. Oh no, they're upset because James and John beat them to the punch. We wanted those seats and you asked first. So you and I don't want to think of ourselves as the ones guilty of such a transgression. But when we get really honest, Jesus today kind of points the finger right at us. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But not you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And Jesus is saying, I've been trying to say this so many times, but you're just not getting it. In my kingdom, in the way I operate, in the way God the Father is, things work differently. True power, the deepest power, is left-handed. What kinds of awareness might this bring to our daily lives? How about in our parenting, which is a word I preach to myself? Perhaps it might mean that in our desperate attempts to correct, to change, to mold, and to shape our little kids, we become aware that straight-lined power, forceful discipline, right-handed action, that at many times is needed, doesn't actually carry the ability to change our children. Perhaps it might mean that in being parents to our adult children, we could take Paul Zoll's advice in his book, Grace in Practice, and try to control less, manipulate less, triangulate less, project less anxiety, and simply be encouragers and supports and harbingers of grace. How about for our business practices? If we're in law or business or politics or banking, we recognize that right-handed power is the currency of operation and that left-handed power is ultimately foolishness in a lot of these public spaces. 
And while right-handed power really is important to holding things together in society, it doesn't actually carry the power to change society. So if you're in law or business or politics or banking, you're soberly aware of the limitation of the way that these things work. What about for students in elementary school or middle school or high school, junior high? You can see how the pressure of teasing, bullying, mocking, how all these things are forms and abuses of right-handed power. And God's kingdom doesn't work like that. What about all the conflicts that you and I find ourselves in? Left-handed power teaches us that we actually don't necessarily need to be vindicated here and now. We can actually be the kinds of people who give up our rights, who might remain wrongfully accused, and who don't get our way. We might actually be able, in the power of Christ, to lose face. What about in our online and social media behavior? You know, all the issues that we stand for and causes we so strongly argue for and post articles about and troll other people's idiotic opinions about, right? Honey, what are you still doing on the computer? Sorry, darling, I'll be right there. Somebody's wrong on the internet, right? We have to sort of stay there and correct it. And Jesus is like, well, see how all that's really led to a unified country and peace and civility among our neighbors? How's all that right-handed stuff working for you? Or how about the way that we treat one another in church? You know, this is really specific and random, but I really do think about this. As much as I, like many other people, enjoy dressing up real nice for church, I hear Jesus checking my heart about this kind of thing in moments like this. You know, we're all such fragile people, way more fragile than we let on. We could say that there are really only two kinds of people in the world, Fragile people whose fragility is exposed and fragile people whose fragility is covered up. Sometimes, if I'm honest, my Sunday dress becomes a modern version of Adam and Eve's fig leaves, covering up my shame. And I wonder sometimes if we're a community of Jesus followers who tend to look so buttoned up and so strong, whether there isn't something for us to hear here. For me, it's pretending to be who I know I'm really not. And maybe Jesus would gently and sincerely say, that's all right-handed power stuff. I don't know how this sermon is hitting you today. Perhaps this teaching teaching sounds kind of limp-wristed or sounds like I'm advocating a veiled form of pacifism that offends your politics. If you're in that place, I invite you to kind of suspend your critique for just a few more seconds and open yourself up to what Jesus is saying and he's teaching, but not only in his words, but in his action. You know, in preparation for this sermon, I was reading big sections of Mark and something struck me about the beginning of this gospel that I'd never noticed before, that Mark begins very differently from Matthew and from Luke and from John. See, Matthew begins with a genealogy and an extended birth narrative, and we don't see red letters or Jesus say anything until his baptism in chapter 3. Luke begins with a dedication to Theophilus, an extended pre-birth narrative, and we again don't hear words uttered from Jesus' lips until almost three chapters in, the boy Jesus responding to his parents in the temple. John begins even more differently, the cosmic Christ, 
The Word made flesh. Jesus first talks when he talks to his disciples. But Mark, in contrast to all these, moves very quickly through the opening action to arrive only 15 verses in to this powerful statement of Jesus. The words he utters, which become a kind of governing manifesto for the whole gospel. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So with that in our minds and hearts, we can ask, why is Jesus, ten chapters later, deconstructing and reconstructing power? Why is Jesus making his disciples and you and me uncomfortable? He wants us to repent and believe the gospel. And to influence us to do this, we mustn't forget chapter 10's teaching and power and teaching about power and weakness and strength and how it arrives in the narrative just before Jesus' final week of life before the cross. In other words, what does Jesus do after he teaches on power and weakness, on greatness and servanthood? He walks straight up the hill of Calvary and he climbs onto a cross and he dies for the sins of the world. He dies for you. The pinnacle act of left-handed power. The supreme act of ultimate servanthood. God Almighty, God Almighty, the all-powerful one who actually holds the keys to all right-handed power. I mean, have you read about the flood? Have you read about Sodom and Gomorrah? Have you read about the overthrow of the greatest kings and kingdoms of the world? That God lays all that completely aside and subjects himself to the full force of all your hate, all your stubbornness, all your failures, and all your dysfunctions. The cross is the great revelation of the left hand, weak power of God. It's the paradoxical place where victory comes through defeat, where winning comes through losing. It's where the victim becomes the victor and where the one who was made sin overthrew sin. And as you look at the cross right now, we can't help but marvel in awe and wonder at this fact that in the midst of the weakness and the humiliation and the shame and the blood and the defeat, that that's the most powerful thing I've ever seen. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be pleased to make this power more manifest to us so that it might be more manifest in us. Shape us as the Advent to be the kinds of people who embrace this foolishness and folly because you embraced it and you showed us the way. But more importantly, by your embracing the cross, gave us the very power out of which we draw all this weak power. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.